0: Welcome to New Books in History. Today we have Welcome to New Books in History. Today we have Professor Amelia M. Glazer, who is Associate Professor of Literature at the University of California at San Diego and director of the Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies Program. And also director of the Jewish Studies Program at UCSD, Dr. Glazer is also author of Jews and Ukrainians in Russia's Literary Borderlands: From the Stettel Fair to the Petersburg Bookshop. She is also editor with David Weintraub of Protel Pen: America's Rebel Yiddish Poets. Professor Glazer is editor of dozens of scholarly and popular articles, including in the New York Times a few years back about Vladimir Putin and Ukraine. And today we are talking about her new book. Stories of Helnitsky, uh, Competing Literary Legacies of the 1648 Ukrainian-Cossack Uprising, which came out from Stanford University Press in 2015. The book has 12 contributing authors. Dr. Glazer is one of these. She's also editor of the book and coordinator of the efforts of all of her colleagues. So, Professor Glazer, thank you very much for joining us today, and, and welcome to the podcast. Having me. Could you please tell us who was this Khmelnytsky, this imposing Cossack leader on the cover of your book, and yes. who do different people say uh, he is?
1: Yeah, well, it, it depends who you ask. Um, I think that if you ask a uh, if you ask a Ukrainian, he was a, an important figure. In Ukraine's history, because Khmelnytsky was really the first person to uh, serve as a uh, as a leader in defining the territory that we now view as Ukraine. Uh, so he's a you know a sort of George Washington figure, if you will. Um, if you ask a Jew, Khmelnytsky's name should be forgotten and blotted out. He's a sort of Haman figure, a uh, you know precursor to. The great anti-Semites of of the modern world. If you ask a Pole, he's a uh, a complicated figure, but perhaps one to be admired. Uh, if you ask a Russian, he's an important ally because he's one of the first people to unite Ukraine with uh, with Rus, with Russia with with Muscovy, and uh, and so it's um, it, it really is. He's one of these figures. Where his legacy depends on the beholder, and of course, even within Ukraine, I simplified it a bit by saying that Ukrainians would compare Khmelnytsky to George Washington. Among Ukrainians, he's also he's also complicated uh, because for many in the past and and even I believe in in the present, uh, for many Ukrainians, he ha- he presents uh, an an enigma because he ended up ceding the territory that he had conquered to Muscovy. So that's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> no,
0: I think it's an even longer longer question. Would, would, would you tell us a bit about the uprising and give us the context of, of the scenario in which his story plays out?
1: Yeah, so the, the Khmelnytsky uprising took place primarily in 1948, 1949. Uh, it was an uprising by a group of Cossacks, uh, essentially, you know, very skilled horsemen, uh, independent and semi-independent warriors who rose up against the Polish magnates, And they had several different demands. The demands involved uh, freedom of territory, freedom to worship, the ability to enlist more Cossacks in the list of registered Cossacks. And, uh, Khmelnytsky was the was the leader. There were, of course, a number of people working under him, but uh, but he was the Hetman of the Zaporozhian Cossacks, and uh, he um, he you know to make a very long story short, ended up conquering a, a large territory and um, eventually handing this territory over to uh to Muscovy um but of course it was it was significant that he rebelled against uh against the those magnates that were allied with the Polish crown
0: so so uh, i think the up, the uprising is the perhaps as you say to simplify the national the definitive moment for what we consider Ukrainians, but at that moment they were part of this sprawling and poly-ethnic uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth with many ethnicities and, and religions. So, uh, as we see in, in your book, and um, certainly the Polish sources, it, it, it is a disruptive. I guess every creation is also a disruption. How, why did he rebel? What were all the things that were going on that? that, that Propelled him was this, this personal vendetta? Was it bigger identity politics? What are what are the stakes? Would you say in in your investigations and the people you have brought together to, to comment on it?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, it's a great. I mean, again, a really kind of fun and complicated and complicated question. He um, uh, actually, you know, is it, the 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 fun story to tell is a personal story. People like personal stories. Readers like personal stories. Uh, so the story, for example, that you know, chose to tell in his in his famous 19th century Polish novel uh, with fire and sword is a story about a personal vendetta, right? Where um, uh, a um, a uh, starista or a leader by the name of Daniel Chaplinsky uh, had a um, a personal axe to grind against Khmelnytsky. Ended up evicting Khmelnytsky from Khmelnytsky's estate, um, and uh, you know killed his son. Uh, there was a, a a large family battle that ensued and. And um, in response, Komelnitsky rose up against all of the poles. So that's kind of a nice, you know, sort of personal narrative. There's a love story involved. There's a, you know, a, a woman that, that Komelnitsky was was in love with, who was taken from him and so forth. Uh, that's always the, you know, kind of the fun personal story and the one that uh, that films well. <laughs> uh, but my own sense of it, having read multiple accounts, is that Komelnitsky saw himself as the chosen leader for a group of Cossacks, as well as peasants, we can't call them Ukrainian peasants, but we can we can call them uh, you know peasants living in that region uh, who uh, you know who were. Really, the lowest on the the totem pole. They were made to pay uh, taxes that they didn't have. Uh, that they didn't have. They were not allowed to practice their religion freely. Uh, they were not allowed to become Cossacks to become Cossack warriors if they wanted to. Uh, they were unhappy in general with the system of exploitation where a large uh, landowner controlled a great number of people who were working at the land. Um, so it was a it was a revolution. Led by Cossacks, perhaps on behalf um, of of others as well. So, uh, so this the the larger, more complex story is is the harder one to tell. The story that has to do with uh, uncomfortable, let's call them proto Ukrainians, uh, who are are not happy with their lot. Um, but often the fun story to tell is the one that involves a you know a lover who's um, you know uh, for for whom. Komelnytsky is willing to go to war. Uh, but, but he was uh, he was the chosen leader for a group of people who were uh, extremely unhappy and did not have uh, rights over the territory that they saw as naturally theirs.
0: Maybe like George Washington, he can also be everybody too, or everything, everybody, or uh, I was just thinking of the Sienkiewicz story you, were, you just referred to, maybe he has to have that personal vendetta so that there couldn't possibly be something wrong with the, with the, with the authority structure as it was, that there could be nothing wrong with being a, you know, a, a subordinate. Um, but there, uh,
1: it's a story that works very well. I mean, it especially has worked well in in Polish history because, uh, you know, Kumanitski, of course, you know, he you know got along well with the 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 King of Poland for a certain period of time, and you can create a narrative that says, well, maybe it was just personal, and it's not that um, you know, it's not that he was really undermining the the Polish Commonwealth.
0: But you wrote a chapter here too, and and you are dealing with something that's a little bit more monstrous, uh, which is the which is the murder of. Uh, Jewish civilians uh, and, and the stories about that. Would you would tell, you know, that's a big black mark in the story. Would you tell us about that?
1: Well, I mean, let me, I'll, I'll just back up for a moment too, because I left, I left Jews out of who is Khmelnytsky. I mean, I, 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 briefly mentioned Jews, but I, um, I guess that will help to, uh, to tell the story about why I felt this book was necessary. And, um, the, perspective that I had come from as a scholar of Russian literature and Yiddish literature, um, and as someone who had only heard Khmelnytsky, Khmelnytsky's name in a very, very negative context in Jewish circles? Uh, my perspective was, you know, how could this horrible villain still be honored? How could there still be a city called Khmelnytsky in Ukraine? How could, uh, you know, how could he still be on the Ukrainian currency? Um, and this was the perspective that I came from as a a young graduate student, beginning my study of this region, um, 20 years ago. And, uh, and when i first visited ukraine no, it wasn't my first time in ukraine but when i i moved to ukraine in 2002 as a, a graduate student doing research in that in that region mostly on russian jewish literature i um i was fascinated by this figure of khmelnitsky but i was really puzzled that you know such a horrible figure could still be you know unproblematically honored and revered. And what emerged from that was conversations with friends in Ukraine about the figure of Khmelnitsky, and also a a sense of how complicated a single charismatic presence can be. You know, we remember, we collectively remember as groups what we need to remember to hold the group together as need be. And, uh, and for Jews, especially for Jews living in the diaspora, um, living in in uh, outside of Ukraine, rather, um, we uh, you know Jews need to think about uh, Kamenevsky as one of many common villains. The fact that the that the uh, the situation was was far more complicated than that it became a really compelling research topic for me so i wanted to understand how khminski um who certainly massacred or at least oversaw uh the massacring of thousands of jews at the least uh could uh could still have statues in uh in a country that is, uh, and even then was attempting to cultivate stronger relationships with Jewish communities, both in and out of Ukraine. Um, so this, you know, this paradox, uh, made me very curious to learn more about, uh, about how the figure has been memorialized in different contexts. So that's, you know, that's the, the bigger background for why I came to, uh, to write about this figure, to use this figure as a figure of conflict. Um, and my own chapter uh, takes up a little-known, but I find really fascinating play by Nikolai Minsky, a Russian uh, symbolist of, of sorts. He was a proto-symbolist. He was writing a little earlier than the people that we usually associate with Russian symbolism, like Blok and 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 so forth. But he really, uh, Minsky was writing in the 1880s and 90s. He was a converted Jew. Uh, he converted to Christianity. Uh, But he still was very concerned with the stories that held the Jewish community together. And he wrote this play um, around the time that the statue of Khmelnytsky was first erected in Kiev in the 1880s. And, of course, the statue that was erected in Kiev was a statue that was supposed to celebrate the unity of uh, of the Ukrainian territories and Russia. Um, and it was also supposed to celebrate the unity among all Orthodox Slavs. And, uh, and so Minsky possibly in response, possibly as a counter to this decided to write this play about the, uh, Khmelnytsky uprisings and the accompanying massacres of Jews. Um, and I think it should be pointed out that even in Minsky's play, Khmelnytsky really doesn't figure in as a character in the play. Khmelnytsky is sort of, you know, he's the, he's the overseer. The play is really about a, a massacre that was led by one of Khmelnytsky's uh, leaders, one of, his, one of his Cossacks, by the name of Krivanis or Krivanos, uh, who is known uh, as, you know, one of the bigger henchmen of the, of the Cossacks of that period. Uh, and so the story that Minsky writes is borrowed directly from Hanover's, uh, Nathan of Hanover's, uh, Chronicles. Uh, that were written in the immediate aftermath of the Khmanitski uprisings. And as Adam Teller shows in the chapter that he wrote for this volume and elsewhere, Hanover essentially was a a historian of his day. He was taking various eyewitness accounts and putting them together, and he came up with this account of the um, massacres of several different communities, several different shtetls. Uh, so Minsky reads Hanover's account, rereads Hanover's account. Uh, it had been translated; Hanover's chronicles had been translated into Russian. They had recently been republished, and Minsky was clearly using the Russian translation. Uh, and he writes this um, very compelling play about the uprising in the city of, uh, or rather, the massacre in the city of of Tulchin and uh you know it was a, one of the largest massacres during the uprising um and he brings together several of the different stories that hanover tells he brings in some from other episodes uh and he you know the story really revolves around a rabbi who uh you know didn't want um the uh, you know didn't want the jews to take up arms Um, on, uh, on the Sabbath and he didn't want them to take up arms against, uh, uh, you know, against the, uh, the Poles they were supposed to, they had made a, the Jews and the Poles had made a pact in that town that they would fight together against the Cossacks. And, uh, and the rabbi said, okay, we need to honor our pact. The Poles didn't. And as a result, the Poles allowed the Cossacks to come in to capture all of the Jews and eventually to kill most of them. Um, so Minsky and his retelling of it creates a um a really strange fictional character uh named Castro who is a uh, a marano a uh, you know a Jew uh, a Jew from Spain or from Portugal I think in this case who had uh, you know who had some he, he was a man who didn't know about his Jewish background discovered late in life that he did have some Jewish ancestry but had to convert in order to actually become Jewish um, after he converts he decides I must go and save my brethren down in Poland. And so Castro, and this is a totally fictionalized character, Castro goes down to Poland, ends up fighting for the Jews together with the Poles and becomes this this hero figure. Uh, And I I find it really interesting that uh, that Minsky, a Russian symbolist of Jewish extraction who had converted to Christianity, would take this um, would, would create this. Spanish Jewish figure as the ultimate figure of strength um, who has converted to Judaism uh, in order to, uh, to symbolize the, the martyr figure, the, um, the outsider martyr Jewish figure who would be strong enough to rise up against the Cossacks. So that's again, kind of to make a short, a short answer longer. That's it.
0: That's just so Curious and endlessly interesting, and I wonder why he created it. is it because he himself is a convert and he himself feels erasinated? and so he has to imagine that here's another fellow jew in a distant land who conversion's not the end of it, and expulsion's not the end of it, and you can move from place to place. What do you think that's about
1: okay so i i, I mean I'm not sure exactly it's it's mystifying, but i um I think part of what Minsky was doing was turning the Khmelnytsky episode into a a parable for his own day where belief was really the strongest trait. And it really kind of didn't matter if the belief was Christian or Jewish or, or what. It was all about having some sort of faith and drawing strength from that faith. Uh, and he was very mystical. Khmelnytsky was incredibly <laughs> um, uh Minsky was incredibly mystical and he liked the idea of a figure, Christian or Jewish, or maybe some hybrid, some kind of Christian-Jewish hybrid, who... Uh, you know, who would, uh, who would fight for this idea of belief in God. So rather than, than having it be a story about the Jews as Jews, the Jews as a people, it's a, it's a story about one Jew who has this very strong faith and it's a, it's a strong enough faith, uh, to lead him to stand up to a, a group of Cossacks. I also think it's, um, most of the stories in the volume Highlight the admiration that the uh, the authors had for the Cossacks, whether or not they uh, they liked the Cossacks. So even if uh, if the authors of the stories, let's say they were Jewish or Polish, and they they felt that the Cossacks were ultimately enemies, uh, there's always this idea that you know I wish we were a little more like them. The Cossacks are incredibly heroic. They're incredibly strong. They're sexy. You know we should all be Cossacks. So I think Minsky as well is valorizing this idea of the Cossack. You know, if only we could fight like them.
0: They go where the wind blows and they they come and they vanish and they...
1: They're, yeah, they're the samurais of, of Ukraine and, uh, you know, who doesn't want to be a little bit like a Cossack? You know, even a Jew who has grown up thinking about how uh, how horrible the Cossacks were to their grandparents or whatever. Uh, and you see this in uh, Israel Bartol's contribution to the volume, which is about, you know, he, he puts forth the theory that some of the early Zionists were modeling themselves, and even modeling their fashion after Cossacks, trying to recreate the Cossack myth for the Jews as they moved toward Palestine.
0: That that makes that makes a lot of sense. That, uh, just to be you know, up up out of the city and off in the in the wilds, very interesting. That also explains why even their antagonists regard these texts with such admiration and respect, uh, and have a hard time ascribing treason to, or even if it's rebellion, surely it's you know a misunderstanding or something like that. Because deep down, they're all brothers. Uh, I wanted to ask you one more thing. You were saying about. Faith is the operative uh, here more than, say, a a, a, a confession or a religion. Um, of course, these Cossacks too are fighting for faith and their Orthodox expression, that their uh, Christian Orthodox expression that they could not do under, or couldn't do un- until you know fifteen sixty nine in Poland. Or, or how does that, is that that too is faith? Is it not, or or is that just not part of the not part of the equation? That, that this these two you know we're 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 all people of faith fighting these antagonists, but they too are are people of faith worshiping God in their tradition.
1: I think that comes out uh, especially strongly in a later iteration of the uh, of the Hanover stories of Tulchin and Nimirov. And one of the things that I argue in my in my chapter in this volume, is that a much better known story, the Yiddish, uh, the Yiddish novella, um, uh, Kiddush Hashem, by, uh, by Sholem Ash, which was written around 1920, is modeled on Minsky's play. And that's an argument that I make uh, by looking at um, the translation into Yiddish uh, that was done by um, by Abram Raisin in Warsaw just after the turn of the century, right after a series of pogroms, and uh, you know it was a time when uh, when Sholem Ash was also hanging out in Warsaw. A lot of the Yiddish writers were spending time in Warsaw and the the around the Yudlamid and Peretz circle, and uh, and I'm I'm certain that Ash Probably saw a uh, a copy of the play in raisin 's translation, and I believe modeled this fairly famous uh, uh, novella after the um, after the uh the Minsky play. And, uh, and for Sholem Ash, Sholem Ash, who was a really compelling character, those who are familiar with uh, with Sholem Ash at all would either know his Jesus trilogy, he wrote a whole trilogy about Jesus and the apostles and Mary, uh, and they were translated into English, they became very famous, uh, Ash was thrown out of the uh, the Yiddish socialist uh, foreword for writing so much about Jesus, he was seen as someone who was trying to proselytize as the Jews and Shulamash, uh, never converted to Christianity, but he was in fact, good friends with a Polish priest. Uh, but he's, if he's not known for his Jesus, uh, novels, he's known for his, uh, his very famous play, uh, God of vengeance or God von nikoma There was a, uh, a Broadway, uh, play about the play called indecent that won a lot of awards last year. So Shulamash was very provocative. That play was about, uh, um, a prostitute who falls in love with the daughter of a uh, wealthy pimp um, who lives upstairs from the whorehouse. And, you know, so he's, he's provoking people on a lot of different, different levels. Uh, you know, his play contained the the first lesbian kiss to be staged on Broadway and all of the actors were arrested. So Sholomash, very provocative figure. He writes this novella based on Minsky's play and the novella uh comes out just after the second major wave of pogroms of the 20th century and ends up putting forth this idea that uh, it's really about faith. His his story ends, his novel ends with a, a sort of a Jewish Luftmensch standing at a market stand saying, I'm just, I'm selling faith. Um, and everybody's been, you know, everybody's been killed or kidnapped or, you know, killed themselves. or I mean, it's just a horrible, horrible, uh, episode that he describes in his novella. Um, but what Sholamash does is takes this idea that these Jews were really warriors for their belief and pushes it a step further. And in fact, there's a scene where the Jews are singing and they're kind of praying to God and the Cossacks hear them and the Cossacks end up stopping everything they're doing and listening. So Sholem Ash actually puts out this idea that the Cossacks and the Jews are both warriors for faith, perhaps on the same level. And uh, interestingly enough, I mean, Sholem Ash would be cited in a number of of speeches by prominent rabbis uh, in the wake of World War II. So there's this idea that um, Jews dying for their faith is something that took place during the Holocaust and that goes back to the times of Kerenitskyi. So this idea of emphasizing true belief and true connection to God um, is something that was exaggerated by these modernists, <laughs> um, but became very compelling in the modern world, where Jews may not be compelled to uh, think of themselves as Jews in a nationalist sense as much as in a kind of you know multinational American cosmopolitan religious sense. Um, so interestingly enough, the faith comes out. Helped along by these Jews who had um, very strong curiosities about Christianity.
0: <laughs> that's a remarkable, remarkable connection. and i I know that you only have a couple minutes, but can I ask you about Ukraine today? Uh, you've written uh, a bit about that in the New York Times and other places, and in your the introduction to your book, you write that the Cossacks are again the symbol for both sides in this Ukrainian struggle and the, the the Russian sympathizers and the pro-Western, uh, um, independent oriented, uh, Ukraine. And, and what, what do you, what do you, and I know that the, um, sort of the Russian gendarmes that go around whipping, um, demonstrators with, uh, horse whips, you know, take, take on the name of, of Cossacks and how, how do you find that symbol in 2018, uh, and 2017 and 16 and 15, um, mm-hmm. Employees.
1: I mean, I struggled with this a little bit because the book came out. We certainly didn't plan it this way. The book we I had uh, conceived of the idea for this volume. uh, Gosh, the book came out in 2015. I in I believe it was 2012. We had initial an initial conference to talk about all of the different uh, contributions, and then as the book was being prepared for publication. 20, the the uh, Maidan broke out in 2013, 2014, and the war started. And I, I was just putting the finishing touches into the introduction and was thinking about the role that Cossacks were playing both on the Maidan and in the Donbass. Um, and we have to remember that Cossacks were initially mercenaries, There were a number of different Cossacks. There were different groups of Cossacks. The Khmelnytsky uprising was an uprising by Zaporozhian Cossacks. There were also Don Cossacks that were further to the east. And, um, and these Cossacks were, uh, often willing to go to war for various groups. Uh, Kmenitsky was, uh, as a leader was highly educated. He was in a sense, a kind of cosmopolitan. He certainly would have spoken multiple languages. He probably spoke, you know, French, Polish, Ukrainian, Russian, Latin, um, you know, a number of languages, um, and, uh, you know, probably Turkish. And, uh, these were people who were warriors and uh and you the idea that you can still have cossacks fighting for you uh, i mean sure <laughs> you know why not everybody can kind of claim their cossacks it works out particularly well in the current struggle because there were don cossacks who were always a little bit closer to russia and the zaporozhian cossacks who were really in the heartlands of ukraine and who were always seen as the proto ukrainian warriors and I, I think that the, the separatists, as well as, as Russia, would be hard pressed to claim that Zaporozhian Cossacks would be fighting for Russia today. But they could make this claim that Don Cossacks might be. Um, so it's, you know, I mean, I, I think the idea of wanting Cossacks to be on your side is one that, uh, you know, that, that is, is somewhat natural for these contemporary warriors in a, a currently incredibly tragic <laughs> conflict.
0: Well, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, it has been a great pleasure to talk with you, and uh, a tremendous pleasure to read this book. And um, more, I have more questions than I have answers, but that's always true with a good book. So, sure. th- thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you for for your thorough reading of it. I really and I'm um, honored. <laughs> Thanks.